I'm just so tired. All day slaving away in the kitchen. Cooking. Washing. I know you suggested we go out instead, but I just really wanted to make this dinner special for us. I know things haven't been going too well, and I know what's been on your mind. That's why you said we should go out for dinner and have a talk. I already know what we're going to talk about. I know what you're going to say. That I wasn't there for you. I wasn't tender. I wasn't sexy. That I was constantly overworked. And my body lost the ability to excite you. You don't know that I already know. I know you've met someone on Tinder behind my back while I was working. Beautiful eyes. Great skin. I know what you found in her. Her perfect breasts. Her thin, feminine arms. Her small waist. Her carefree attitude that only someone who doesn't have a job can have. I admit, you have great taste. And you should have her. For dinner. The sun has gone down. It's dark outside. Nighttime has begun. But you dare not close your eyes. For in the darkness there are things unseen. Faces without eyes watching you. Nightmares exist while you're awake. No matter how much you try, you remain sleepless. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. It's classy to be a delightful hostess. Having your partner's new, uh, friend for dinner is quite gracious, as we learned from author Yulia D'Argento, from the tale which was this episode's cold open. Dinner Date, performed by Nicole Doolin. As we're now well into October and the month of Halloween, I trust everyone is bracing fully for a spooky few weeks. We've got our big Halloween episodes coming out at the end of the month. And don't forget to get your tickets to Dr. Sleepless at the Stanley. They're going fast, so hurry before you miss the chance to hang out with the No Sleep crew, along with Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel on November 4th and 5th at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. The link to tickets is in the show notes. We're working hard to make this the most sleepless Halloween ever. We hope you'll join us for all the festivities. And now, we offer for your approval a series of stories we hope will make you sleepless.
In our first tale, we see the calendar turn over to the month of October. As such, Halloween is on everyone's mind. And in this tale, shared with us by author L.P. Hernandez, we meet a couple of teenagers going to a Halloween party at the home of the new girl at school. Dare we ask, is love in the air? Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Mary Murphy, Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, Danielle McRae, Ellie Hirschman, Catabelle Ansari, and Lindsay Russo. So enjoy the fun and games of a teenage Halloween party. But don't be nervous. I'm sure you'll be able to figure out if things are a trick or treat. So, what do you think it's going to be like? I mean, you're the only one who knows her. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we talked a bit, but I don't know if she would consider me a friend. Just a guy in her neighborhood whose family wasn't rich enough to leave for the summer. Well, that makes two of us. But, I mean, she doesn't go to our school, so no one really knows what to think. Does she go to the academy or something? Homeschooled, I think. It's just her and her grandma. Well, she didn't actually say anything about school. I'm guessing she's homeschooled, though. Says they live off her grandma's government checks and a small inheritance. Not academy material. How could they afford the Murdoch house? He could fit every house in Coldwell Drive in there. Yeah, but it's falling apart, you know? No one has lived there since... I don't know. I didn't even know you could rent it. I mean, someone must own it. Some Murdoch grandson or niece who doesn't want to deal with it. It is big, but it probably costs less to rent than my house, which isn't exactly a mansion. Wow, look at it, man. I've never seen the place lit up like that. It's like, it's like spider's eyes, the windows, looking over all the lessers. I wonder how many are going to show. She's not in her school. Couldn't have made a lot of friends with most kids leaving for the summer. True, but we've all wondered about the Murdoch house for years. And... She's hot. She's hot. Well, you would know. Think I only saw her a couple times from a distance. But after that, I've only ever seen the grandma out in the yards picking weeds. Actually, she's gathering herbs. Something like that. Heather said there are a lot of plants that have wild cousins. Stuff you can eat. I guess her grandma knows. You're avoiding the part about her being hot. <laughs> yeah, she is. But there's more than that. She's... She's like no girl I've ever met. Like an old soul presence. I mean, she's the new girl in town, living in a dilapidated, probably haunted house, and is poor on top of it. But she didn't seem bothered by any of it. Like, when we were talking, she would get distracted by a butterfly and lose interest in our conversation. And I think she might have worn the same dress each time I met her, just some old summer dress a hipster might wear ironically. <gasps> is young Scott falling in love? <laughs> I... We're just friends. And yet, here we are, going to a Halloween party when we both promised tonight would be our last time trick-or-treating. We're in high school. We were in high school last year, too. <laughs> True. But last year, no one invited us to a Halloween party. Didn't figure it would happen this year, either, so trick-or-treating was a safe bet. Ugh, look at those cars. Makes me sick. What teenager needs a BMW? Those aren't even the assholes. They'll be fashionably late. Well, whatever the opposite of that is, is what we are. Pathetically on time? 
Sounds right. Let me get the gate. Fuck, that was heavy. Or you're just weak. I'm gonna blame it on the costume. The same Ghostbusters jumpsuit as last year? Did it get heavier, or is your arm tired for another reason? I did have the house to myself this afternoon, but I'll stick with the costume. Ah, shit, that's a lot of steps. Imagine carrying groceries. Groceries? I can barely handle this heavy-ass costume. Whoa. Scott, I was afraid you wouldn't come. Of, of course I came. I'm, I mean... And I'm his handsome friend, Jonah. We haven't met yet. Nice to meet you, Jonah. Come on in. She's fucking beautiful, and she likes you. If you don't... <clears throat> so how's the party going? Oh, okay, I guess. I thought this would be a good way to meet people, not being in school and all. Your grandma? What she doesn't know won't hurt her. <laughs> I'm kidding. She's around. Probably upstairs somewhere. Doesn't hear well and goes to bed early. Oh, okay. Well, I wanted to thank you for inviting me. I don't go to many parties. Of course. You are my first friend in this town. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me get that. Feel free to explore. But we haven't done much with the place yet. If you find something weird, don't blame me. Previous owners and all. Dude, she fucking likes you. What? Squeezing your arm, all that disgusting eye contact. She likes you. And doesn't look like there's much under that dress. And there's a lot of rooms in this house if you wanna. I'm not like that. What do you mean, not like that? We trade porn all the time. That's... different? I'm a nice guy. I'm not some horned up jock like Matt. Did I hear my fucking name, clown? Matt? (laughs) No, no, we were talking about math. You know, like school math. Yeah? You sure about that, TP? TP? Oh, yeah, Scott. Like the toilet paper brand. (laughs) No, we were just just talking about... Yeah, okay. You two would be talking about math at a Halloween party, huh? You, uh... You looking at that new girl, TP? That means you, fuckface. No, I... I wasn't. I got plans tonight, TP. Don't get in the way of them. Come on, let's get a drink. Hey, sorry about that. (sighs) It wasn't your fault. Now I remember why we don't come to these things. Look, I'll get us a drink. Why don't you uh, explore? I mean, we've wondered about this house since we were kids. Look at all those books. Look at those paintings. There's gotta be some cool shit around here. Yeah, okay. The Book of Aberrations. Hmm. Cathonic. Cathonic Gnosis. Cathonic Gnosis? What the fuck is this thing? Jesus! Oh, fuck. Uh, Sorry, I didn't see you there. Ma'am? Um, Heather's grandmother? I... Oh, ma'am, you're... You're close. You don't have any. Uh, uh, uh-huh. 
uh, uh, where's where's your room? I can take you to your room, ma'am. Can can you hear me? What are you smiling at? <sighs> oh man, Jesus, Scott, Scotty, over here, man. Where? where what's wrong? I I went exploring. I went uh, to the second level. I think. Could have been the third. Most of the stuff is covered up, but I found some books. Weird stuff. I ran into her grandmother. And? She was naked. <laughs> well, I guess you're in the lead then. No, no. She looked confused. Old. She had plants in her hand. Herbs, I guess. And she was smiling. Hey, man, I said you're in the lead. Don't have to rub it in. There's something off about her. Like, she was confused, but not crazy. More surprised to see me, I guess. Did the curtains match the... Oh my god, dude. I didn't look. I told you, I'm not like that. I know, I know. You're a nice guy. Well, you can be a nice virgin guy when you get to college with that attitude. Dude, it was her grandma. It's not like... Hey, sorry for butting in. Totally not spying on you. But I overheard you had a run-in with... Well, you know. Sorry. She can wander sometimes. Don't worry. You won't see her again tonight. Unless it's in your dreams. <laughs> I, uh, uh, can you tell her I'm sorry? I didn't mean to scare her. I think you were the scared one. Uh, where is everyone? Come on. Whoa. Okay. What's going on? I've never hosted a party before. Didn't know exactly what to do. Sorry if it's lame, but we're going to play Seven Minutes in Heaven. What? Is is something wrong? Who invited the asshole? And his asshole friend. Hey! Sorry, just having fun. You know that, don't you, Scott? It's a big night for you. I'll make sure to stop by your house with some teepee in your honor. Don't listen to him. And don't worry. He's not the one I'm hoping for. You have to sit across from me, though. I told you, man. Thank you all for coming to my party. I haven't met most of you, but I'm happy to. I don't really know how to start this. I guess someone needs to spin the bottle. Fine. I'll do it. You better spin again, you piece of shit. I'll do it. Ooh. <gasps> we don't have to do anything, right? Don't kiss and tell. Seven, Seven minutes. Seven minutes. Ah, oh, smells like shit in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you, buddy. So do we just wait now, or...? There are 28 closets in this house. 16 are on the first floor. Fuck yes! Heather, you don't have to- Fuck off, TP. It's the rules, Scott. We have all night to play. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You don't want to. I said, fuck off, TP. Who says she doesn't want to? Anyone else? Nope. 
Yeah, let's just wait for them. Hey, it'll be okay. I mean, like you said, nothing has to happen. And even if it did, it's not like here together. We're just having fun at a party. We should be glad to be here. I just... I just hope she's not like that. Like what? You're not together. Yeah. But... You're not together. <sighs> yeah. Hey, uh, not trying to rub salt in the old wound, but is that the dress you were talking about? The one she always wears? I think so. I just saw it for a moment, but I don't think she's wearing anything underneath. What? I'm just saying, maybe she is that kind of girl. Here they come. Look. He looks like a new man. This is fucking bullshit. Fuck this. What's up with Matt? I don't know. This is fucking bullshit. Dude, chill out. It's just a game. Jonah, 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 Jonah. Me? Who are you gonna call? Jonah. Uh, okay. I, I, I mean... It's the rules. Fucking bullshit. Hey! Watch out! Fucking bitch. Thought you were different. God, this fucking sucks. Can't believe this fucking happened this way. What the sh- God damn it. Scott, is that you? Yeah, mom. How was trick-or-treating? It was fine. Gonna head to bed. Oh, okay, dear. See you in the morning. I knew you were just like them. Hey, where did you go? I need to talk to you. Scott, I need to talk to you about tonight. Call me now. Hello? Hello? Scott? Yeah? Who is this? You're a friend, right? The new girl? Uh, Heather? Who, who is this? It's, uh, it's Matt. Your friends, right? Matt? I guess. Why? Why are you calling? Dale, tell... Tell her I'm sorry. Please, tell her I'm sorry. Sorry? What... What did you do? Matt? What did you do? Oh, Jesus. Tell her. Matt? Hello? What the fuck? Huh? What happened to the... Hello? Don't be silly, Scott. Come in. Heather? What are... How did you get in? Come in, silly. What are you waiting for? I... No, you went with the other... Who cares about them? I was waiting for you. I want my seven minutes. But I'm... I'm not like that. <laughs> 
Aren't you? I saw you looking at my dress, Scott. No, no, I didn't. I didn't mean to. What if you did? What if I wore that dress for you? But you went with the other. (gasps) Oh, come on. It's a hand, not a snake. I didn't want it to be like... Oh? How did you want it to be? You wanted me to throw myself at you? I'm here, aren't I? That's better. I can't see you. That's the point, right? I could be anybody. Now, what do we do with our seven minutes? What did you do with them? Hmm. I'm in your bedroom, in your closet, wearing nothing but this dress. And you want to talk about them? I... I thought... You thought? You thought I was waiting for you? Something like that? I just... Because you're a nice guy, right? I mean, yeah, I am. I mean, I try to be. Respectful? Yes. What's that smell? Even when you have a girl naked in your closet, huh? So, what to do with our seven minutes? Huh. I have an idea. How about a game? Game? A Halloween game. You have to guess what you're touching. I... (gasps) (laughs) I told you. It's a hand, not a snake. But that one is free. You'll have to guess the rest. Oh. Okay. What do you feel? Um. It feels... Bumpy. Warm. Kind of... Like... I don't know, a pumpkin, but soft? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, maybe like a rotting pumpkin. Is that the smell? What about this? Oh, it's, uh, feels like my mom's hairbrush. Like, all the hair tangled in it, it's wet. Is, is it the inside of the pumpkin? It's warm, kind of furry. What does it taste like? Taste? I... I don't... Oh. There you go. That's a good boy. Oh. Oh. That... That's awful. It is a rotten pumpkin, isn't it? (laughs) That would fit the season, wouldn't it? I don't understand. You came to my room and hid in my closet with a rotten pumpkin? That would fit the season, wouldn't it? Oh, uh... It's something old. How do you know? It just feels old. Like something that's been out in the sun. Old leather? An old baseball mitt? Something like that? Hmm... Maybe... Is this what you did with them? With the other guys? (sighs) The other guys again, hmm... Is that what you're thinking about? I just thought... Why don't you think about this? What? What is that? What do you think it is? I don't know. Boo! 
Sorry for the fright earlier. Was just preparing a few things. You wanted to know what I did with the others, didn't you? Because you're so special, right? I needed to be pure for you. What's so special about you, Scott? Why do I have to be pure for you? What did I do with the others? I took from them. That's what I do. That's what I am. I take. But you... You're so special, right? Like that thing between your legs is pure gold, right? Pure gold. Yes, I took from them. But I'm going to give to you something pure, something gold. Now you're special. Hey, where'd you go? We came back and you were, like, gone. I, I ended up leaving, too. My head feels funny. We should probably talk. Call me when you wake up. Hey, Scott. I, I really need to talk to you, man. Something something happened. I, I don't know what. I just feel off, like, drained. I, I can't remember what we did in the closet. I mean, it smelled funny in there, but... Listen, I feel... I feel empty. Uh, please, please call me. Scott, something's wrong. I went back to the Murdoch house to confront Heather, but there's nothing there. It's it's locked up. Chains on the gate, no lights, nothing. No one's been there for a long time, and I feel old. My hair's turning white. I, I can't remember what we did. Did I, I see the grandma too, or was that just you? I, I have a memory of seeing her, but yeah, it's fuzzy. I'm just... I'm just so tired. Call me. Please. Picture this. You're a newly married couple and you've already found your first home. Sure, it's a bit of a fixer-upper, but you're up for the challenge. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jason Washer, the couple realizes there's a strange smell somewhere in the house, and they're determined to find out where. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Goodnight, and Jeff Clement. So plan to do a lot of work. The list is long, it always is, when the list is known as a honey-do. 
The words every woman wants to hear. Megan walked into the living room, her crooked half-smile changing to a frown. Some women here, I love you. You're beautiful. You light up my life. You're the stars and the moon and the entire world, baby. But me, Eric? I get, come smell this? Oh, it smells like a cow died under here. He pointed to the corner of the living room next to the wood stove. Do you smell that? Megan sniffed, the nostrils of her small nose flaring. I think it's just the floor polish, the wood cleaner. I cleaned the floors yesterday. It's bad. He shook his head as he walked to the other side of the room. We should try a new brand of cleaner. He dropped down onto the couch and turned on the news, rapidly clicking from one network to another and back again, enthralled with the finally repaired cable television that Megan had surprised him with earlier in the week. It had taken three long weeks to have it fixed. Eric soon forgot about the smell. A month ago, newly married, six months after their first blind date, they moved into the small house set deep in the woods. Not quite a cabin, and not quite a house. It came to them cheap. A single story over a crawl space. Two bedrooms and a bath, wide pine floors. Most of the tiny backyard taken up by a septic field and surrounded on three sides by woods deeper than a man could walk through in a night. Calling the house rustic was a kindness. Ramshackle was a better descriptor. In the short weeks they had been at the house, a series of workers and repairmen had filed through. Last week, when the pipes froze, Eric had crawled under the house with Megan's hairdryer. When he wasn't able to thaw the pipes, Megan called a plumber over while Eric was at work. Later, still irritated that it had taken so long to get someone out to thaw the pipes, she said that the plumber had told her that the house seemed like it had been built by a couple of good old boys for a case of natty light. But that smell. Eric noticed it again after work the next day. He walked in the door at half past seven and dropped his empty briefcase in the corner of the kitchen. He grabbed a beer, not a natty light, and then went to the living room to say hello to Megan. Hey doll, how was your day? She glared at him from the couch, the frown from the day before back on her face, the half smile nowhere to be found tonight. The smell, Eric, the smell is really bad. I knew I smelled something yesterday. I knew it was something. Yeah, you win, but God, it stinks. You've got to find it. Eric walked across the room toward the corner, cowed by her irritation. She had a fast temper and he didn't want a flare-up tonight. As he crossed the room, his head snapped back. The odor was much worse today, much stronger. It's too dark right now. I'll get under the house tomorrow and see what it is. They watched the television in the bedroom that night, far away from the smell. They kept the door shut. The next morning, Saturday, they woke up slowly and fooled around a bit before getting out of bed at 9.30. Eric slipped on yesterday's jeans and a clean t-shirt and a flannel over that. And after coffee and putting on his coat, he went outside to find the source of the smell. The house was open concept, the small kitchen on one end and the living room on the other. Off the living room, a deck looked over their piece of the woods, and under the deck was the entrance to the crawl space. Eric grabbed the flashlight from under the kitchen counter, went outside, and walked around the house toward the deck. His feet crunched on the snow. 
A cold winter day, overcast, a light flurry drifting down from the gray sky. As he ducked under the deck, he wished he wasn't. He didn't want to be looking for smells on a weekend morning, or, for that matter, doing any sort of work around the house. He could swing a hammer if he had to, but he sure as hell didn't want to. He came from a long line of builders and carpenters. His grandfather, his father, both his brothers, countless uncles and cousins. Eric, wisely, he thought, was an accountant. He wielded a calculator and computer instead of a hammer and saw. And yet, here he was. His pride wouldn't allow him to hire an exterminator to crawl under the house. He might have been an accountant, but he was still filled with pangs of misplaced shame every time he farmed out handyman work around the house. And it was worse yet when Megan did. So, down on his knees, under the deck on the damp dirt, he slid the metal barrel bolt to one side and carefully opened the small hatch to get under the house. He crawled through the door. On his hands and knees, he shined the flashlight from corner to corner, under the pipes and scraps of loose hanging insulation. The smell was worse down here, even in the freezing winter cold. Much worse. He expected a dead raccoon or a squirrel. In the far corner, he saw something. Not a squirrel or a raccoon. No. Too big. Whatever it was, suddenly seemed to take a slow breath. Eric shuddered involuntarily and crawled out from under the house as quickly as he could, accidentally smacking his forehead on the top edge of the crawlspace door on his way out. Again, that night, they stayed in the bedroom, the door shut against the stink of the living room. Megan, usually a good sport, was not amused. She expected him to be handy around the house, to fix things. Eric promised her he'd get it, whatever it was, out from under the house tomorrow. Sunday morning. They woke slowly, but this time, there wasn't any fooling around. Maybe later. At breakfast, before she had even two sips of her coffee, she announced her intent to go into town to run some errands. Can you take care of it while I'm gone? Or do I need to call someone to come over and do it? He promised he would take care of it himself. Under the house again, this time armed with not just the flashlight, but also a short-handled gardening spade. His father was too old to come over and help out with this, and Eric was too old to ask him, he thought. He was sure his grandfather, tough guy that he had been, would have crawled right up to whatever the hell this thing was and snapped its neck. Eric resolved that he would. He would crawl right to it, kill it, and drag it out from under the house. He could bury it in the woods, whatever it was. It was still breathing, slow rolling breaths that seemed to move the whole body. Eric inched closer to it and held the flashlight out as far as his arm could extend. A muskrat, he wondered? What did a muskrat look like? And what if it had rabies? Of course, if it had rabies, it probably would have already attacked him. He went forward another foot, and now he was 15 feet away. Eric could hear it breathing. As the body rose with each inhalation, there was a soft, wet crackle. Eric froze, unaware that he was holding his own breath. There was no one else to do this, only him. What else could he do? Sell the house? Let Megan leave him? 
For a split second, he considered both options and then let out his breath and kept going. As he crawled further in, the headroom grew lower and lower. He moved carefully, his head down. It was dark, even with the flashlight, and with the low pipes and bits of torn insulation hanging down around him, he couldn't quite see back to the door he had come in anymore. He heard a door shut upstairs. Megan? Hello? He wondered if his voice would carry up through the thick layer of insulation under the floor. No response. And then, in front of him, he saw the boot. His heart pounded, and in an involuntary spasm he shrank back as far as he could until he was pressed back against the wall. He tried to speak, but was frozen mute with fear. Finally, after long seconds... Hello? Jesus, are you okay? Hello? The thing moved up and down, breathing, and he heard the wet, crackling suction with each breath now. And the smell. Oh, God, the smell. He crawled toward the boot, the person's foot. A person. He had to help them, of course. Hello. It's okay. Don't worry. I see you now. I'll get you out of here. The man... It was a man, Eric thought, although he wasn't sure, wore a filthy jacket and dirty overalls soiled through with urine and feces. The smell. And only then Eric noticed the second man, this one not moving, his neck bent at an impossible angle, still wearing the cable company hat. He found the smell. Oh, Jesus. Everything's okay. You're going to be okay. We'll get you out of here. Don't worry. Eric saw the toolbox now. The plumber. How long have you been down here? Finally, a response. A voice that hadn't spoken in a week. A harsh, strained whisper. Run before she locks it. And then Eric heard the metal bolt slide shut. And he could hear footsteps. Megan's crunch on the frozen snow as she slowly walked away. Megan sank down into the couch and turned on the television. She flipped through the channels until she found the Home Improvement Network and then turned the volume up high to block out Eric's faint screams. He would quiet soon enough, a day, maybe three, and then she could drag him and the others out from under the crawl space. The septic guy wasn't due to come out for another week, and it was a large tank. He'd fit, too. A cold breeze came in from under the door, and Megan pulled her sweater tight. Eric had installed weather stripping around the door a few weeks ago, but obviously had done less than a workman's job of it. She would need to call someone over in the morning to fix it. Being lonely is an all-too-common problem. You want to share your life with someone else. You want companionship and maybe even love. 
That's not too much to ask for, right? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Wayne Power, we meet a wholesome man who isn't looking to hook up. He's looking for someone special. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula and Aaron Lillis. So let's learn of this man's tale as he looks for love. Let's hear why he says, I answered a personal ad last year. Before I start, I would like to clarify I am not a womanizer. I don't condone sleeping around with a lot of different partners. Gaining another notch in the bedpost, as some people like to say. I like to consider myself a long-term relationship sort of guy. I really like to get to know my date and have multiple outings with them before, well, you know. The quickest way into a young lady's underwear is not my cup of tea. All that in mind, last year I answered a personal ad on a local website. You have to understand, at that point in my life, it had been almost 15 months. Over a year without meeting someone and having a connection real enough to move past a second date. With my own personal beliefs, that's over a year without a sexual encounter. The human body has certain needs you have to satisfy. It's in our nature, a sort of animal instinct to mate. I know that might sound barbaric or paint me as a Neanderthal just after another woman to mount. I assure you, this is not the case. I'll admit my growing appetite, my longing for affection, to feel the warmth of another body against mine. This is what pushed me into seeking another like me. Someone else just looking for a physical release. This is what led me into the personal ad section of my local buy-sell website. I will find what I'm looking for in here, I thought. Amongst the seemingly endless amount of scammers, people looking for college friends, and others literally selling themselves for sex, I will find another lonely soul just looking for a night of fun. In retrospect, I wish I had just swallowed my pride and answered a cash-in-advance type of ad. Life's funny like that. The road not taken, that is. Everything would have been different. So very different. I checked for weeks, refreshing the list whenever I had a chance, hoping to find something that spoke to me. I responded to a choice few that I thought might be what I was looking for. I don't know what was worse, the ones who didn't answer back, or the ones who did. One woman told me she would give me the contact I was looking for, as long as her male roommate could watch us. Another wanted me to pay her car insurance in exchange for sex. The best one was a recently divorced woman who explained she wanted me to essentially act like her ex so she could work through some leftover frustrations. I was beginning to think it was pointless. I started spending more time reading escort service ads. I was becoming desperate. Then I saw it. Female seeks male. 
Lonely, timid, seeking compassion. Someone to hold tight and make me feel alive. I long for my arms to wrap around someone while I sleep. Age and looks are not important to me. I just need to be held. Will you hold me? I was skeptical at first. Many ads had seemed promising at first glance before you saw the person's true nature. Nevertheless, I responded to her and waited for my impending disappointment. To my delight, the disappointment did not follow. Margaret seemed so very genuine, another lonely soul. We chatted back and forth for only a night before we had plans to meet. She wanted me to have dinner at her house and go for a nighttime walk. She told me there were plenty of trails nearby. She lived in a small suburb outside the city. I felt like I was heading into the deep country, not driving towards the suburb. It was almost two hours from my house, and the thought of turning around raced in my mind. I'm not the greatest with directions, and getting lost was always a worry for me. I found it easy enough, though, thanks to Google Maps and an extra-large coffee. It was a small community, and it looked like it was desperate for an update. Houses with chipped paint, missing shingles, and crooked fences lined the road. I guess you could call it a road. It was mostly cracked pavement filled with gravel. Did anyone even live out here? Maybe Margaret wasn't as good as I thought. Another fake account or scammer online. Simply there to take advantage of sad and lonely people. Just my luck, someone sent me on a wild goose chase to an abandoned suburb in the middle of nowhere. I had almost given up hope when I eyed my destination. It was a small home, but at least the roof was intact. It was painted a light green color, faded from years of sun exposure. I could imagine the vibrant green years before, but with no one to do upkeep for her, I guess Margaret let it go. From the look of things, she had no neighbors to help her out either. Before I had an opportunity to knock on the door, I heard a soft voice calling me from the other side. It's unlocked. I was caught off guard. I hadn't seen her looking out any windows. Maybe she heard the car. It doesn't matter, I guess. I've come this far. I took a deep breath and walked inside. I was pleasantly surprised. The inside of the house was in a lot better condition compared to the outside appearance. Fresh paint on the walls, no dust to be seen. The hallway was filled with framed pictures, all perfectly positioned to the ones adjacent. The smell of fresh baked bread filled the air. Any hesitations I had on the commute drifted away. This felt like a home. I'm in the kitchen! The soft voice echoed from the other end of the hallway. I tucked in my shirt, ran my fingers through my hair and made my way towards the inviting smell of fresh bread. She wasn't facing me when I entered the kitchen. I was greeted by the sight of her long, waist-length red hair, perfectly straight. She appeared to be slicing one of the loaves of bread. She was a small woman, no taller than five foot. Without even seeing her face, however, I was intoxicated by her. It was as if she had an aura about her that was drawing me to her. 
But something had me locked in place. I couldn't move. I didn't want to leave, though. I wanted to be here with her. I didn't even know if I could talk, if my mouth wasn't working along with my legs. I didn't have a chance to find out. Before I could properly introduce myself, she spoke again. I am so very grateful for you coming here today. I've been waiting for so long for someone to hold me tight. Can you do that for me? Can you hold me and cover me with your warmth? She laid her knife down on the cutting board and began walking towards me. The strange thing was, she didn't turn around. She was still facing away, taking small steps backwards towards me. I was in awe. I didn't grasp what was really happening, but I couldn't look away. I was fixated on her long red hair like a crimson silk over her head. It did not sway or bounce as she moved. It stayed perfectly straight down her back, almost reaching the back of her knees. I could have sworn it was only to her waist when I first entered. That thought vanished when a new smell hit me. The welcoming baked bread scent in the air had drifted away. The pleasant aroma that surrounded me was gone. It was now something rancid, something that burned in my nose. It smelled like roadkill cooking in the sun. How is that possible? I would have smelled that immediately. This was one of my last thoughts before she reached me. Her hands reached up behind her, reaching out to me. Elbows twisted and popped as her arms bent in a way the human body doesn't move. Gently, her long, slender fingers slowly stroked my face. Her touch made my whole body feel numb. It was colder than the coldest wind hitting your face in the middle of a blizzard. My breathing was slowing down. I felt like I was slipping into a trance. She had done something to me, but what? I was terrified, praying to move. I remained frozen, pleading with my body to do something, anything, to get away. She leaned the back of her head towards my face, one hand still caressing my cheek as she lifted the other one onto my lips. I was inches away from the once radiant red hair, now a greasy, unkempt mess of knots and curls approached my face. I've been waiting so long to be here. The faintest glint of a smile showed amongst her messy red hair. This isn't the back of her head? How? Her neck began creaking and cracking as it twisted slowly from vertical to almost horizontal. Her hair now hung in a different direction towards the floor, revealing a single eye, black as coal. I could see more of that crooked smile as well. Tiny yellow teeth pointing everywhere but straight. Her head snapped back to a vertical position in an instant with a loud crack. Now hold me! The words echoed from her as she wrapped her body around mine.
My body awoke with a jolt. I was dripping sweat and breathing furiously. I was also in my own bedroom. Could it have all been a terrible nightmare? I would like to give you all a bit of hope, or a happy ending if you will. That it was all in fact a dream and there never was a woman named Margaret. The truth is never really happy though, is it? Margaret has become my curse, a burden I now hold with me. She doesn't paralyze my movements anymore or torture me per se. If you were to come to my house, you'd swear it was just me here. She's here though. Every night, sometime after midnight, I'll awaken to the smell. The sour, rancid smell of rotting food. As her cold hands wrap around my body, I refuse to look at her. I can't. She places her body against mine tightly and whispers ever so lightly. I just need to be held. Can you hold me? This has become my life. A year of sleeping cuddled into the cold grasp of what I believe to be death itself, holding me, whispering to me. I was scared to go to sleep at first, knowing Margaret would be waiting. It's amazing what the human mind can become accustomed to. After all, it is nice to be held. There are plenty of horror stories involving a Ouija board, that mysterious device through which we can supposedly communicate with those on another plane of existence. But in this tale, shared with us by author Kat Sinor, we get the perspective of a Ouija session from the person, the entity, being spoken to through the board. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Lindsay Russo, and Wafia White. So, as you sit in the darkened room with the candles and the board in front of you, take it very seriously. Consider, if you will, who's on the other side of the planchette. Ten twenty-three p.m. You ask me my name first, which is not wholly unexpected, your fingertips resting lightly on the planchette. The game always begins like this, and I almost do not engage at all, for it is a dreadfully dull thing most evenings. Dark descends on the manor, and people lose themselves in the drudgery of terror. Forgive me if I yawn. Forgive me if I offer only coyness in return to your first remark. What is your name? Perhaps I am an old princess, or a forgotten monk. Perhaps I am a long-buried child, 
born to parents who have never seen a European ship. Perhaps I am someone without a name altogether. Does it matter here? And so, my dear, you ask me my name, and I am cruel in answer. I give you nothing at all. Most grow bored at this point. No matter what they may say, people carry doubts when they sit in my room, and doubts bleed into boredom so quickly. Yet you, you shining girl, are patient. Even when your friend leaves to search for more wine, you keep asking me questions. Your brows furrow in concentration, and your black eyes, near in color to the dimness I've been doomed to see, yet somehow, miraculously brighter, flicker to the bathroom, the place where you know I died. Oh, you are curious. I recognize that. You are curious in the way that boredom cannot beat. And I realize even now that I might love you one day. In that first session, I do not walk across the creaking floor. I do not put my hands upon the planchette. I stand in the doorway, the liminal space where I see both my demise and your life. And I wait. I watch. I listen as you speak to me. Ask of me. Behind me, my body rots in the past, waiting for someone to find her. I won't be rude. Your friend approaches up the broad stairway, and so you speak softly, holding your hand steady on the wood. You are sitting on your knees, and you adjust. I revel in the detail, in knowing that you are making yourself uncomfortable for me. I'd just like to hear about you. You, not the Lavender Lady. What did you love about the world? I was born when everything felt new. When the steam locomotive was cutting its way across the country, and I picked up my skirts and traveled alone for the first time in its compartment. I was born in a time when I thought I might see autonomy for myself, for a future in which I controlled. I was born in a place where it was all possibility. And then I grew, I learned, I lived. I lived during a time when I was proven wrong. I died at the moment I could no longer stand it. What did I love about the world? Even when I lived and walked and breathed and loved, no one asked me such a brazen question. They knew my talents. A few even knew my passions. But they did not ask me about these things. I did them because I could not imagine another way. I do not know who you believe yourself to be to ask such a question of me. I have only begun thinking of my answer when you sigh and look up. <sighs> For a moment, I think you see me, and it is glorious. Your eyes fall on the spot where I hung, and you tuck the loose strands of your hair behind your ears. You have a line of piercings on your ear, from lobe to curve, and I tilt my head to the side, letting the pale lamplight catch the reflection of silver. I'll be right back. You stand, linger. I know now what it is you see. You stare at the portrait hanging in the room. 
The maroon-steeped backdrop allowed for the lavender color of my dress to shine in a way my husband always hated. The eyes of the portrait, my eyes, return your stare. Can we talk again soon? You say your goodbye like it is filled with the most recognizable sort of sounds and leave the room. I kneel beside the board that you left so carelessly by the bed and answer. Discovery. 11.15 p.m. The doors to your cabinets are open when you return to your room, your friend in tow behind you. I do not remember opening them, but I must have. Haunting the home you hate becomes a ritual of its own. Time flows, and it sits still. I move, and I don't. I stumble down the halls, and my feelings never dim or quiet, but grow louder and sharper at the edges. I hate this home, I think. I hate these people. And then you return, and the cabinets are open, and I am in your present day. It is not the day I died. Look, Winnie, I think to myself. Don't you see how the lights are a different color and how the clothes these women wear are so different? Don't you notice how there are signs on the walls describing your life and how the dining room downstairs has been turned into a restaurant? It is not the day I died, and it is. Both are true. Both are lies. I think we should try again. I think I will answer. You and your friends sit cross-legged on the ground in the bedroom, the board between you. What is your name? Gently, I nudge their hands to the W. Both of the pair's eyes widen, but ah, your gaze moves to your friend. It is brief, but it is your reaction that I watch. You suspect her, do you not? Curiosity and suspicion, battling so dearly on your features. It is too early to tell which will win. Where did you die? Don't ask that. We're sorry. Could you tell us if you're here in the manor with us? I have already made up my mind to answer. I tell you to go to another place, to follow that sense twisting in your stomach, and leave this room. Bathroom. I spell. The process takes time, precious time, and your friend's hands twitch under my touch. The place you keep looking to, confirmed. But what do you do, my lovely, stupid girl? What do you do instead of following my guidance? You pull your hands away. That's it? You finished? You and your friend chatter casually. And I do not hear the words. I hear your stillness. How you do not go where I ask. I hear your breath tremble while you try to play brave. 11.44 p.m. Why did you not do it? Why did you not go? I spell out the cosmos and you turn away from it. I wonder why your curiosity fails you in this. I wonder why it upsets me so much to finally answer, to finally reward your patience, only to be deeply, wholly, truly ignored. 
I have been ignored so much. Surely you must understand why I get angry. I am only human, even now, even when I am not. Do you forgive me? Your friend wakes, screaming. Once, twice, thrice. I lost count, same as you do. I plunge my hands into her skull, and I twist. She tries to sleep, and I visit her. I turn myself into the full, disgusting form of who I am. My eyes left me first when they buried me. I find them in your friend's dream and dig them up. They come from her sockets, and I laugh while she begs me to do anything else. I laugh while I plunge a knife into her, while I turn into you plunging a knife into her. Her dreams are terrors of their own, and she screams herself alive again. Neither of you sleep well, but it does not please me like I thought it might. Whenever I get the rowdiest patrons to my room, I do this. Boys who make the night into a dare, girls who wish to scare each other into confession, men with their silly equipment who long to make me a show. And it brings me pleasure, for I could never get away with terror when I was alive. But when I wake you through your friend, I feel as though I did in that last moment of breath, an ache of sadness, sprouting like the first blush of mold that would soon take form in my chest. 6.15 a.m. And then we are continuing our game. In the morning, before the sun fully rises, you carry the board into the bathroom alone. You rest it on the center table and pull up the wooden chair. You can't seem to decide where to sit, and you drag the chair all around, glancing over your shoulder at each spot. You appear more serious now. Are you mad? Good. Take me for the haunting I am. Straightforward. Worried. Stubborn. I move the planchette for you. Yes. I need you to understand. Please, I need you to understand. I saw you crying at the table last night before you pulled out the board. Your hand clutching a glass of wine. Your friend tried to comfort you. But there is no comfort to be found, my dear. You realize this already. You are caught in the suffering of women. But do you not see that I am one of them? I am one and I am caught with you. I am continuing what you started, and it is not out of rage that I do so. It is because you cried about the weight of it all, and it is a weight we can share. Please, shift some onto my back. Let me carry it. I am 25 years old and dead. What more can I offer? Please. You soften in a way I do not expect. Your shoulders relax, and you smile, the gesture genuine and kind. I did not know if you were beautiful before. I know now. Your hair is short and choppy, as if you did it with your own hand. Your fingernails are chewed down. You have an uneven paleness from the sun. That is the secret to beauty, do you see? The life that exists within it. The stories it tells. I'm sorry. Although I do not believe you, I lean forward all the same, 
I want to know the thoughts behind your words. The anger and the agony. Are you lonely? Loneliness has new meaning in eternity. It is the natural state of things, the order the universe will always fall into. We are not born alone. We are born between the legs of someone very much alive, however brief. We do not die alone. We are sent to the ground, where roots and rhythm take place. Pre-birth, post-death, these are the lonely times. The times we still float in the universe, waiting to be recycled. And even in my wait, others pass through. My home is a hotel now. Who could be lonely in it? I am grateful for those curious enough to try to speak to me, even if I do not always answer. I am curious about them too, do you understand? I love this game. I thrive on this game. It allows me to forget the natural state of things. The planchette does not move for a long time. How can I say such thoughts when my options are yes and no? When even moving it to one of those two words is an exhaustive effort? I cannot decide. And the planchette pauses, my hands on yours, in between the two options. Do you remember what you said, my dear? Do you remember your whisper? So faint your friend has no hope of hearing. It's fine if you are. Yes. The planchette sounds like it is begging. Yes. Perhaps not anymore. 6.32 a.m. You are delighted by the shower. It's one of the few things that remains original to the manor. Multiple nozzles surrounding you like a birdcage. A spigot for soap. I do not understand why it delights you so much. And I sit in the chair you've left at the table, as if you've left it out for me. You dance as you step into the warm water, pulling the curtain closed. Uh, if you're still here, would you mind looking away? I laugh, although the sound is silent, but I do as you wish. 8.01 a.m. You return to the bathroom with your friend in tow, both of you eyeing the board with renewed interest. I know that you've told her what's occurred. I know also that you wholly believe it now. It makes me embarrassed to have you both here, and I pace the tiled length of the room while you set up. I am not as careful as I usually am with most curious guests, and my footsteps echo now and again in the bathroom, causing your friend to flinch. But you keep your eyes on the planchette. You both rest your fingertips on the wood, ever lightly. You came prepared, and it is too late that I see the list of questions you have written down on the back of a food menu, your handwriting sloppy and quick. Well practiced. I do not know if I should smile or grimace. You ask me if I wanted to marry, the first time since her that I have been asked. The planchette glides, after a moment of shock, to no. You ask me if I was ever in love, and there is no hesitation this time. Yes. You ask me if I have been hurt in this house. I know what it is you seek. 
what they always seek after a time. You want to know why I am here and why I answer you. After all, this house is littered with signs of the men that lived here. Those daring boys who turned their weapons on themselves. Why am I the one that lingers with the loudest voice? Why am I the one that lasts? It is harder to move the planchette, but gradually it slides to yes. Who? Do you wish to avenge me, darling? You know you cannot face your own devils, and so you try to face mine. I laugh, and a chorus of ghosts mock me. M, the planchette says. A, the planchette continues. N, the planchette ends. Man has hurt me. It is always man. Will you come back, I wonder? 8.35 a.m. Last of all, you ask me my favorite color. It is you. 8.57 a.m. I flutter the curtains in an attempt to watch you leave, but I only see the faint outline of a woman. It might be you. It might be your friend. Instead, I imagine that it is me rushing after you. Wait! I will call out. I forgot to tell you the most important thing. You will stop and wait for me. I will cradle your face in my hands and say something that makes you want to stay. We will see one another. But I am in here, behind the curtains that never fully part. And you have returned to the world that has made you beautiful. I will not know that you left the place where my soul is trapped and approached the place my body is trapped. I will not feel when you place the flowers at the entrance of the mausoleum this dreaded family buried me within, as if to say that they own me, even in death. I will only learn of this in the future that has and has not happened when you return. When you greet me by name, first. Having a roommate can be a good thing. They can help with the rent, help clean the place, and even hang out with you. But having a roommate can be a difficult thing as well. Just ask author Jill Bagachinsky. As they share in this tale, sometimes a roommate can be a bit of a pest. What with all that noise they make and being so damn clingy. Performing this tale is Graham Rowett. So be thankful if your roommate wants to be your friend wants to make you feel special. You can rest easy as they tell you, all is well, friend. I'm the thing that lives in your walls. You've heard me, I'm sure. 
The scratch of claws against unfinished wood, the dragging thud of uneven footfalls. The house is settling in the cool of the evening, you tell yourself. This cosy old house that cost you next to nothing. It's settling, that's all. And that's why it sings so at night, crooning in creaks and scrapes, and those odd pulsing puffs that sound so very much like something breathing behind your headboard. I'm sorry about that. Sometimes I can't help creeping just a little closer. I peek through knotholes and cracks, watching you nestle under your blankets, listening to your sleep-measured breathing and the way you sigh when you dream. You're just so fascinating, friend. I do think of us as friends, you and me. It's a one-sided friendship, yes, but I adore you so, and I help when I can, just like friends do. You don't know, how could you, about the burst pipe I fixed last month, before it could flood our basement? You don't remember leaving your curling iron on when you hurried out on your date the other night. I unplugged it for you. All is well. That date, though. We must talk about that date. You barely knew him. Yet you brought him back here. Into our home. I was watching then, too. If you only knew what I saw. The ease with which he picked through your jewellery box the next morning while you were in the shower. He pocketed those pretty diamond earrings you inherited. The ones you could never replace. You were sad when you came out and found him gone. You liked him. But friend, he wasn't good for you. He wasn't good for us. That little panel in your closet wall opens easily from the inside. I crept out and pounced, with a hand over his mouth before he could scream, and what's done is done, and all is well. I even had time to put the earrings back before you found him gone, and pouted because you thought you were alone. You're never alone, friend. And the fate of your date? Parts of him were delicious, and the other parts? I'm very good at dealing with these things, at disposing of these things. I have practice. After all, you got the house so cheaply, and you never thought to ask why. Or perhaps you didn't want to know. Friend, it was because I worked very hard to make room for someone just like you. You wouldn't have believed the last people that lived here. A family with so many children. Half a dozen of them always screaming and wailing and slamming doors. The noise drove me half mad, friend. I had to get rid of them. You understand? What else could I do? And it's so easy with little ones. Just scuttle out of the shadows and pull the loudest into the closet. And what's done is done and all is well. I wasn't even greedy. It took just one a season. And that was enough. After the third went missing, with no leads or clues or whispers of hints, the parents packed up the rest and moved away, leaving my house in magnificent silence. Then you came. I was ready, oh so ready, to snatch you up into my walls. I was poised to be angry, but the longer I watched you, the more I loved you. The way you ran your fingers over the polished banister... How you smiled when you noticed the glow of sunlight through the stained glass window in the kitchen. You saw this house as I see it. As a sanctuary. You were meant to live here with me. And so I let you stay. It's been glorious ever since, hasn't it? Don't you think it's been glorious? Except that man you brought back here. We can't have that. I'm very particular that way, and I'm sure you won't appreciate it if your dates keep going missing. It's all right. We'll discuss it tonight. You won't need dates anymore. Not when you have my company. 
I've crept from the panel in your closet. I'm waiting here for you. Once you look beyond my sunken sockets and the rows of shark's teeth in my smile, you'll see in me what I see in you. A friend. Oh, oh, I hear you. <laughs> You're home. Now you'll follow the routine I've watched so many times. You'll hang your keys on that little rack by the door, and you'll head up the stairs, and you'll slip into your bedroom and turn on the light and see... Hello, friend. Please stop screaming. There's no need for so much noise. All is well. In our final tale, we enter the dark halls of an old English country home, once used as a clergy house. Isolated, desolate, not a residence most people would choose. But in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Bleakin, we discover the home is perfect for horror writer Stuart Heath. An excellent location to create horrifying tales. Performing this tale are David Alt. Erica Sanderson, and Andy Cresswell. So don't mind the local townsfolk if they want to avoid talking about your new home. You probably don't want to learn too much about Underhill Rectory. The sunlight streamed in pale, listless patches through the narrow windows of Underhill Rectory, the tattered curtains hanging like limp, rotting ghosts. Those long rooms, closely clustered with heavy, dark furniture and even heavier beamed ceilings, gave a claustrophobic sense of dread rather than an impression of godliness. In fact, the echoing hallways and creaking staircases with their sinisterly carved newel posts, seemed haunted with the shadowy presence of half-seen shapes always glimpsed from the corner of the eye. A creeping sense of being watched pervaded every room as though the dark corners hid veiled spectators. The place had lain dormant for the past twelve years, cloaked in silence as thick as the dust that had settled on every surface, but I knew as soon as I saw it, hidden in a secluded corner of the village of Weirston, surrounded by tall hedges, old yew trees and close to a softly flowing river, that it was perfect for my needs. As a horror writer, I relished the quiet seclusion and the odd pervading atmosphere which was more than conducive to my line of work. And as a pagan who held nature sacred, I loved the sprawling garden which, after twelve years without tending or care, had turned into a glorious wild wilderness, a haven for butterflies, insects and nature, silent save for the raucous calls of crows who flocked like furtive mourners in the trees around the garden. 
My friends all found it highly amusing that a pagan and a polytheist to boot should have bought a former rectory, but it looked as if all traces of its former existence had abandoned it long before I ever set eyes upon it. In fact, the rustic church next door was also shut up tight, and the weeds and tall grass growing along the untended path hinted at long years without active use. It felt as if something shocking must have happened here, more than just the financial cutbacks or changing demographics that were often the causes for such closures. Even though I wasn't a Christian, it seemed odd that such a beautiful country church should be abandoned, and the fact that the rectory had been sold so cheaply, though I later discovered no other buyer had shown interest, complete with several items of heavy furniture in situ, suggested they wanted to be rid of the place as quickly as they could. I tried with varying degrees of subtlety to uncover what had happened, but the locals were a tight-lipped bunch. Word had clearly spread that I was the new owner, judging by the brazenly disapproving looks I got whenever I walked through town. You'd have thought I was Satan himself out for a stroll, goatee waxed and shining, and hooves clacking merrily on the pavements as I went in search of souls to corrupt. I soon began properly exploring every shadowy room within the rectory. The whole house had a faintly musty smell, but that was hardly surprising in an old building, especially one that had stood vacant for over a decade. By the time I finished settling in, the smell of furniture polish and sandalwood incense had covered the worst of it, and I knew a good airing would take care of the rest. In my initial forays about the property, I had found only one forgotten photograph of the former residence, sitting in a box of old things that had accidentally been left behind a small cupboard. A Reverend George Bowman, round-faced and in his mid-fifties, with short grey hair and whose stern gaze could have melted iron, and his slender, pale-faced daughter Annabelle, who stood timidly behind him, as though she had grown from his shadow and would wither in the light. The remaining cupboards and shelves were all empty, though I checked each just to make sure. The only drawer I was unable to access was in a bureau up in one of the larger bedrooms. There was no obvious lock on the drawer, so I could only assume age had frozen it shut. I couldn't help but notice the heavy iron crosses fixed on both of the outside doors, clearly part of the design. Although not to my taste, I left those for the time being as removing them would necessitate repainting. In the lounge, there was a long row of wooden shelves fixed to one wall, and I soon dusted and populated four shelves with my treasured fiction collection. The next three shelves were given over entirely to my books on druidry and pagan spirituality, with enough space left at the end for the polished wooden box that held my tarot deck. I determined in time to expand my library out into the dining room across the hall, since I had little use for it. In the far corner of the lounge, close to a window with a garden view, I set up an altar on a sturdy table, placing two large orange-red pillar candles at either of the ends, an incense holder and a bowl for fresh flower petals and offerings in the centre between them. Since we were approaching the festival of Samhain, I selected autumnal colours as far as I could, oranges, browns, reds and gold. 
Upstairs, I decided on a narrow back bedroom for a writing room. In such a big house, I had four to choose from, the other three much larger, but this one felt perfectly tucked away, let in more light than the other rooms, and had the best view out over the tangled garden. The view from up here was beautiful. The garden was deep and wild, hidden from prying eyes by an untamed hedge that had to be six feet tall at least. At the far end, past a maze of bramble and wildflowers that still clung to life despite winter's approach, was an earthen clearing surrounded by gnarled yew trees. The ground there looked oddly charred and blackened. I assumed it must have been where garden rubbish had been burnt in past years, though I wondered why nothing had ever grown there since. When I came back down into the long, dark lounge, all my tarot cards were scattered like fallen leaves across the floorboards. The box that should have held them was still sitting up on the shelf, lid wide open. I stared at it in confusion before stooping to gather them up. I placed them carefully back inside and closed the lid, resting a heavy book atop it for good measure. There was a soft padding of paws as Shadow came up from the basement and slinked around the edge of the door, looking up at me with her stunning emerald green eyes. Given up hunting for mice? I smiled. She purred as I moved closer, lazily stretching her front paws out and blinking slowly up. She was always a flirt with me. I'm guessing that wasn't you then. I gestured at my tarot box. My only answer was another slow blink and a loving head bump against my ankle before she prowled off to investigate the kitchen and the bowl of dried food I had left out for her. I spent the rest of that day writing upstairs, the incident with my cards quickly forgotten. I had taken to playing dark, ambient music on my headphones whilst I wrote as a means of ignoring the omnipresent creaks and groans of the old place. I knew in time I'd get used to the sounds the old house made as it moved and settled, but for now it was easier to cocoon myself in a bubble of concentration and block everything else out. At some point Shadow pounced into my lap, wanting to curl up and sleep there. I had grown used to this trick and had learnt the fine art of typing over a snoozing cat. When I next looked up, it was growing dark outside, whole hours having evaporated in what felt like minutes. I got up slowly, coaxing my feline companion off my lap. Outside my window, the setting sun painted the horizon with a blaze of golden orange-red, the light filtering through the old yews to dance among the knotted shadows of the garden. That same glowing light splashed vibrantly down the wall of the stairwell, shining in through the topmost landing window. But it failed to touch the chill darkness of the lounge. As I flicked on the light and stepped inside, an icy bolt of alarm shot through me. My books on druidry were scattered across the old carpet in a graceless heap, all scattered and jumbled as if they had come off the shelf with great force. I crouched down and began collecting them up, casting my eye at the shelves above me. Just my druidry books had fallen. My collection of fiction novels was completely untouched. 
After testing the shelf, which seemed stable enough, I carefully restored everything to its rightful place. I tried to ignore the growing fingers of unease that fluttered in my stomach and the curious knotted feeling of tightness in my chest. The room was icy, and the sense of being watched grew more maddening and intense as I stood there. I looked around for Shadow, but saw she hadn't followed me in as she usually did. Instead, she stood out in the hall, peering around the edge of the door. This is my house, I said aloud, feeling foolish. Mine. The only answer was a soft rustling of fabric from the chair that Shadow was now watching intently, as if she could see something there that I couldn't. It made the hairs on my neck stand up. Gradually, the chill lifted from the air, and Shadow slinked cautiously back into the room and stood close to my leg, peering uneasily up at me. Shelf needs another nail. I wondered whom I was trying to convince. Shadow stayed close to me for the rest of the night, refusing to leave my knee and casting the occasional furtive glance at the chair in the corner. For the next week, things settled down and life resumed its normal pace. The curious incident with the shelves wasn't repeated, and so I quickly pushed it from my mind. There was the occasional odd event during that week, keys disappearing and then turning up in strange places. I found the remote control to the TV on the floor in the kitchen once or twice, and the radio developed a curious habit of bursting to life at random moments, but that probably only meant that it would need replacing soon. Once I even awoke at 3am, certain I could hear a baby crying faintly from somewhere downstairs, a strange mewling cry that seemed oddly muffled. But upon investigation, I only found Shadow in the kitchen, pawing eagerly at her empty food bowl and meowing loudly as soon as I entered. It crossed my mind that I was deliberately avoiding spending time in the lounge. But that room was the coldest and darkest in the house, and until I got the heating sorted, I preferred the quiet seclusion and warmth of my upstairs writing room. Shadow, meanwhile, spent most of her time down in the basement's clustered warrens, hunting for mice amidst the cobweb-shrouded storage boxes. I had a feeling, since all of the humane traps I had set down there were constantly empty, she was probably wasting her time. Things didn't stay quiet for long, however. On the morning of the 30th, events took a new turn. A faint scratching whispered along the hallway as I walked to my writing room, a coffee in my hands, steam billowing upwards in the cold air. Just shadow on one of her hunts, I told myself, though I was secretly sure she had gone out. I paused as the scratching became more insistent. It seemed to be coming from one of the bedrooms to my right, and I gently pushed the door open with my foot, peering inside. The windows were so grimy and choked with ivy that the room was almost in twilight. 
I could make out a large mirror, the edges decorated with faded, painted flowers, reflecting my pale face back at me, and several huge wardrobes looming darkly in the corners. I creaked my way cautiously across the protesting floorboards, shivering as I checked the windows were closed. They were, but the room was still glacial. I added getting the windows replaced to my mental list of things I needed to do. That list was steadily growing, and I remembered all the warnings I had been given about old houses eating money. The sound came again from somewhere over by the old chimney breast. I wondered if perhaps a bird had become trapped. I set my coffee on the mantel and was about to crouch to peer up the chimney when I realized it actually appeared to be coming from the wall next to the chimney breast. I pressed my ear against the plaster and held my breath. Within seconds I had my answer. It was definitely coming from within the walls themselves. I hoped we didn't have rats. As I moved back across the room, having retrieved my coffee, something white flashed in the mirror and I turned. I was too far away to have been reflected in it and was wearing darker coloured clothes. For a moment I could see a hazy outline in the mirror that wasn't present in the room itself. It almost looked like... I recoiled in shock, my train of thought shattered at both the sensation and sound of an exhaled breath against my ear. I slopped half my coffee across the floor. It took a few seconds for my hammering heart to settle. Idiot. I chided myself, looking down at the mess I had made. Just a bloody draft. Before leaving to find a cloth to clean up the spill, I glanced back at the mirror. The white haze was gone, and I wondered if I had really seen anything at all. I spent the rest of the day writing, stopping only for a light lunch and then resuming almost straight away, not stopping until late into the afternoon. When I finally finished the chapter I had been working on, I rubbed my eyes and shut off my MP3 player, silencing the ambient music, and heard clearly a soft, deliberate creaking from the staircase. For a moment, I dismissed it as the house settling. Those little creaks and groans still caught me out. But then I realized I could hear the wood of each individual tread and riser creak one at a time in a deliberate progression that felt intentionally stealthy. I knew without a doubt that someone was slowly ascending towards me. The sound was too loud for it to have been shadow. Her familiar pad-pad-pad up and down the stairs never changed. This could only have been an intruder. And from the cautious approach, it sounded as if whoever was there expected someone to be home. Slowly, I eased myself out of the chair, heart hammering, too afraid to speak out. I grabbed an old brass lamp from the desk, hastily remembering to unplug it, and walked as softly as I could to the door, clutching the lamp like a club. The top step had a familiar squeak to it, and I felt my blood run cold as I heard it. The intruder was right outside the door. Fear blossomed within me like a black flower, a stomach-churning shiver of terror that left me sweating. 
My heart crawled into my throat as the handle rattled. Then it began to turn. I lifted the lamp up, ready to ward off whoever was about to step inside, when everything slipped into a strange, distorted slow motion, as though the world had become trapped in amber. The handle turned fully, the door swung inwards with a dreamlike slowness. Around me a ripple shivered through the walls, as if I was looking at a reflection in water. I smelled a woman's perfume and felt a soft, delicate hand on my arm. At the same time, a flood of rage and hatred coursed through me, limbs shaking and hands tightening their grip on the makeshift weapon. The door was now halfway open. I narrowed my eyes, readying myself to strike, no longer merely planning to ward off any intruder, but fully intending to kill. And then it passed. As if a storm cloud had suddenly broken to let light and calm back onto the world, I blinked, all the rage and fury gone. The door finished opening and I stared out onto an empty landing, shaking and wondering if I were going mad. I dropped the lamp and fell back into the chair, shoulders heaving as great sobs racked my body, as though I were purging myself of whatever had just surged through me. The tapping of the branches against the window behind me became more insistent, maddening, and I staggered from the chair, needing to get outside. The room seemed suddenly airless and too narrow. I took three steps, and then the room whirled into darkness. I recall a fragmented dream of being carried down a long hallway, my legs kicking and my arms pounding at whoever was carrying me. I remember pictures falling off the walls as my flailing feet struck them. There was blood, too, running across the floor. I could hear the grinding of old stone bricks, a cold and dark sensation of being enclosed. Bricks seemed to be closing in around me, pressing against my body. Then everything went hazy. When my senses returned, I found myself sprawled on the floor. Shadow was licking my nose, her soft purring comforting in the cold stillness of the house. I made my way carefully down into the kitchen in something of a daze and made myself a strong coffee, wishing I had something more potent in the house, while Shadow padded back into the basement. The events before I blacked out had taken on a surreal quality and I now wondered if they had truly happened as I feverishly recalled them. Deep down, I feared I may have suffered some kind of seizure or mental break. I sat at the kitchen table, clasping a steaming mug of black coffee in my bloodless hands, wondering what to do next. Around me, the shadows lengthened as the sun burst in futile flickers through the enclosing wall of hedge outside. I could still remember the fury that had consumed me upstairs. It had flooded instantly through every fiber of my being, and yet it hadn't felt like my own rage, more like something that was being projected into me from outside. With trembling hands, I set the mug down, spilling coffee across the table, and hurried outside. I needed space to think, to breathe, and I couldn't do that with those walls and the thick ceiling beams closing in on me, choking the air out of the room. 
I stood between the old yews at the bottom of the garden and closed my eyes. I listened to the wind rustling the leaves and branches, feeling the earth beneath my feet, grounding and stable, and the energy of the wind and sky above me and about me. But still I felt troubled, unable to clear my mind of the terrors that whispered to it. The garden was eerily quiet, the crows having fall sullenly silent at my appearance. They now clustered in the trees and seemed to be watching me, a scene unsettlingly reminiscent of something from Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. I spotted movement out of the corner of my eye. A woman with a stern face, narrow and smiling mouth and grey hair pulled tightly back into a bun, stood just inside the gate, staring up at the house. Hello? <laughs> she started, surprise on her face. I... I I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to intrude. She turned, clearly intending to leave. Please wait. I hurried over, grateful for human company. The words blurted out before I could stop them. Do you know anything about this house? She gave me a slow, appraising look before nodding. I was the housekeeper here. Many years ago. Really? I ran a shaking hand through my hair. Would you like to come in for a cup of tea? I asked a little too quickly. I could only begin to guess how I might look and sound, or what she must be thinking. I'd love to know more about the place. It's history, I mean. Her eyes narrowed. She shot a sharp glance up at the tree that stood outside my writing room window. I don't have the time. Please? It felt as if my smile would start tearing my face if I kept it fixed on my lips for much longer. I think she must have seen something in my eyes, because she looked back at the tree before nodding uneasily. I'll come in for a bit. Then I need to be on my way. Sitting in the lounge, I realized it was the first time I had spent any real time in that room since the curious incident with the books. There was an awkward silence as I stared into the steam rising from my cup, while my visitor peered curiously around the room. I had the distinct impression she was looking for something, or watching for something. Although she sat and sipped her tea, she was restless, ready to jump out of that seat at a moment's notice. It might have been because I was a stranger, but I was starting to get a sense that her unease seemed to be coming from the house itself. You haven't redecorated. Her gaze fell upon my altar in the corner. Well, not much. No, not yet. I, I plan to. I just want to catch up on some work first. What work do you do, Mr... Heath. Stuart Heath. I'm a writer. A writer? She frowned, her gaze not softening. And what exactly do you write? Not filth like that Fifty Shades nonsense, I hope. 
Oh, nothing like that. Uh, mostly horror and science fiction. From the look on her face, that answer wasn't much better. She stretched her narrowed mouth into a forced smile and sipped her tea. So you were the housekeeper here? That's right. A Mr. Bowman and Annabelle. I'm Mrs. Lindell. I was surprised to see you at the gate. It seems everyone else is afraid to come near the place. I always stop by the house close to Halloween. To pay my respects. Respects? Annabelle passed away on All Hallows' Eve. Tomorrow, God rest her soul. I see. I had no idea. She nodded in the direction of my altar. What is all this? I would hate to think someone had brought devil worship into a house of God. Fallen from grace, though it may be. Oh, the devil has nothing to do with it. My altar honors nature and my ancestors. I thought about adding, and my gods, but decided that was definitely not going to be helpful in this situation. She didn't look any more comfortable for my explanation, but merely flashed a weak smile, then gazed down at her tea. So, what happened to Annabelle? It was as if a shadow passed across her face at that question. She almost grew paler as I watched. Her fingers gripped the cup so tightly I felt sure it would shatter. I only learned the truth of it later, that poor child. Annabelle had always been a quiet one. Bookish. Not one to venture far from home. However she managed to become pregnant is beyond anyone. I didn't even think she knew any boys. She got pregnant? In my mind, I recalled the pale, timid creature I had seen standing in the minister's shadow. She had looked as if one good sneeze would knock her over. Out of wedlock. Mrs. Lindell nodded. Her hands had started to tremble and drops of hot tea spattered her shoes, but she never noticed. It was a young lad from Perford, by all accounts. As I said... We only learned the truth of it later, after, well, after what happened. What did happen? Is it why everyone is so afraid of this place? Why it was closed up? It's why the church closed, yes. One reason, anyway. People simply refused to come here. They felt it had become... tainted. Her voice was strained, thin, as if she was fighting to get the words past her lips. Tainted? After what happened, with Annabelle, after what I saw. What did happen? Annabelle went missing. She's never been found, even to this day. Missing? I eased forward in my seat. I'd noticed the way she'd swallowed nervously as I asked the question. But you know something, don't you? Something that makes you sure she's dead. 
You said she passed away on All Hallows' Eve. For a moment, it looked as if she was going to say something. Then she set the cup and saucer clumsily down on the side table with a clatter and pretended to check her watch. I really need to be going. Please, nobody else will talk to me and I need to understand what's happening in this house. Happening? She looked aghast. Something isn't at rest here. Her lips drew tightly together at my words, but I could see the tears forming in her eyes. Annabelle confided in me. The tears spilled down her face as she spoke, as though something that had been bottled up for too long had finally been allowed release. But I had to tell him. He was her father, and oh, she was so young. With the mother gone, I felt sure he'd understand. She was all he had. I knew he had been acting strangely for some time. Even Annabelle noticed the changes. It was clear something was wrong, but... She sank back into the chair, shoulders trembling and reddened eyes fixed on me. He dismissed me immediately, told me to go home, and I did. But I came back that evening. I was worried. Something didn't seem right. He'd been acting out of character for months, so different from the kind man he'd always been. And I no longer felt I knew who he was, or what he might do next. I crouched beside her and on some impulse took her hand in mine. She gripped it tightly. He was in the kitchen, kneeling on the floor when I came in. There was blood everywhere. So much blood. It was all over his clothes and his face. He was trying to clean it up. Too much blood for anyone to have... Well, you know. I screamed. And he grabbed me. Told me to shut up. He said I shouldn't have come back. I told him I was going to call the police. And he attacked me. Swung a knife at me. She held up her hands, and I saw the scars slashed across her palms. I ran, clawing at the door with my bloody hands. I almost couldn't open it. The handle was so slippery. But I got out. I ran. And as soon as I got home, my husband called the police. Did they catch him? She shook her head. No. Mr. Bowman hanged himself from that tree outside. They found a fire burning at the bottom of the garden. Looked like a heap of bloody rags, the knife, and an old twisted coat hanger thrown on top. They searched, but never found Annabelle. I knew they wouldn't. There was too much blood. You think he killed his own daughter? Whatever happened that night, he took those answers with him. All I can tell you is that I saw the devil that night, 
burning in the eyes of a man I had thought a loyal servant of our loving God. Her hands were shaking now, and she blinked as if realizing for the first time just how long she had been sitting there. Oh, I've said far more than I should. Thank you for the tea. I walked her to the door and opened it onto a glorious golden October afternoon that cast long shadows across the world. Armed with my new knowledge, I ran a dozen different scenarios through my head, like plots in a novel, and I was left with the distinct impression that one, or perhaps more, of the former occupants was still lurking inside the walls of the old rectory. Before Mrs. Lindell stepped outside, she put a hand on my arm. You should redecorate. Let this place put its past to rest. Let it move on. I smiled and thanked her, watching as she walked away down the path without a backward glance. The morning of October 31st brought an unusual stillness to the house. No wind stirred the trees outside and even the usual groans of the house seemed curiously subdued. The rectory seemed darker than usual that morning, and I switched the lights on as I set about putting the finishing touches to my altar, including respectfully adding a roe deer skull I had found on a walk in the woods several years before. Samhain was a time when the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead was said to grow thin. It also marked the birth of winter. It was a time when modern pagans honoured their ancestors and all those who were no longer in their lives, as well as looking back upon the harvest of the dying year and planting seeds in their lives for the year to come. The date was also All Hallows' Eve, a Christian festival of honouring the sainted dead, and the two festivals had mingled to form the roots of the largely secular Halloween. As the day edged towards dusk, I went for a walk through the small wood that bordered the back of the house, watching the changes in the landscape around me as we moved closer to winter's birth. This year it looked as if it would soon rain, and I recalled something about a storm having been predicted. I came home, showered and changed into fresh clothes, before heading down to light the altar candles in the lounge as desk fell across the land. The house was freezing, and I was thankful that the candles would soon banish the chill and bring some warmth into the room. Rain struck the windows heavily as I started my ritual, and overhead the low rumble of thunder added an extra element of drama to the proceedings. As the newly lit flames danced and bobbed, I scattered a handful of incense onto the coals in my small burner, sending fragrant smoke coiling about the candles and began my ritual. In remembrance of lives now gone, of ancestors and loved ones, of the cold chill of winter and the passing of summer, we light candles to hold back the dark night and to warm the air. As the veil grows thin between the worlds and spirits walk the land once more, we remember, know, honor and love all those no longer with us. My opening words were cut short by the violent slamming of a door upstairs. Shadow, who had been curled contentedly in a nearby chair, 
hissed loudly before darting into the hall. I heard her scamper down the steps into the basement. There was a swift, heavy creaking of the floorboards overhead, the distinct sound of footfalls accompanying them moving across the upstairs hallway. A thump shook the house that had nothing to do with the storm outside. I hurried into the hall and peered up the staircase. I could hear the steps creaking as though some unseen Eidolon was striding down towards me. Those sinister thumps were coming closer too, following those disembodied footsteps exactly. A picture halfway up the stairs suddenly shook as if struck and crashed down onto the step, the glass front shattering as the frame broke. There was another creak from the next step down. Another thud shook the wall and echoed through the house, again level with the creaking step. Another picture frame shook and dropped like a stone. I backed away until I felt the front door press against my spine, terrified but mesmerized by what I was witnessing. I clearly saw each step bowing as it creaked, and each time the wall shook moments later as if something unseen struck it with force. A cold breeze gusted icily past me as the last step creaked and the final thump shook the wall hard enough to send another picture flying. couldn't breathe. My head felt giddy as though the floor was spinning. The skin on my arms knotted into goose flesh and a tingle ran through me as if the air were charged with electricity. For a moment there was silence. Then I heard the kitchen door swing open and the light click on. I don't know how long I stood there staring dumbly at the door to the lounge. When I finally coaxed movement into my legs, I staggered almost drunkenly, as if my knees might give out at any moment. My eyes widened as I approached the kitchen door and saw a pool of blood expanding outwards across the floorboards. It felt as if a hand was squeezing my heart and the urge to vomit swelled within me, but somehow I kept it down. A scream echoed through the room, the scream of a young woman in terrible pain. I sagged against the doorframe, tears blurring my vision and my whole body shaking. There was a heavy dragging sound now, moving from the kitchen through the lounge and down the basement steps. It sounded like the plastic rustle of a waterproof sheet. There came a muffled thump from each of the stairs leading down. I couldn't swallow. The sick feeling churned greasily in my gut like a trapped animal and a terrible fear was coursing through me as Mrs. Lindell's words echoed in my mind. Annabelle went missing. She's never been found. 
I had an awful feeling I knew exactly where she was. Like a man in a dream, I walked to the top of the basement steps, peering down into the darkness below, my heart racing so fast I thought it would burst. The steps seemed to stretch into infinite blackness, like the entrance to some infernal Tartarian abyss, as though the land of the dead itself yawned open before me, and I stood on the brink between that world and my own. I had always known the veils between the worlds were thinnest at Samhain, but for the first time it felt as if I might pass beyond them altogether, and I wondered if I would ever return. I flicked on the light, the single dim bulb that flickered to life thick with dust did little to dispel the darkness. With agonizing slowness, I inched down that old staircase. The air down here was frozen, and I shivered, blinking to clear tears that clouded my vision. The bitter air robbed all sensation from my fingers as they gripped the banister. Each step put the world I knew further behind me. The basement was heavy with unseen presences, as if a congregation of hidden souls were hiding behind every dusty storage box or lurking around every corner. I could feel eyes upon me. My skin prickled and my stomach crawled with anxious dread. Annabelle! A soft susurration, part exhaled breath, part disembodied moan, answered from somewhere in the darkness. As it faded, I became keenly aware of another sound, a faint scratching like nails desperately clawing and dragging against stone. It was the same as I had heard upstairs by the chimney breast in Annabelle's room, only much clearer here. Slowly, I allowed the sound to guide me through the maze-like warren of the basement. In my floundering attempts to uncover something of the history of the rectory, I had learnt there were old tunnels running into the basement of the property. Some claimed these linked up to the church, others that they were smugglers' tunnels, others claimed they dated from a time when the rectory basement was used to house miscreants and criminals awaiting local trial. The main room of the rectory had doubled as a law court centuries before. The basement walls were made of heavy stones, and in part some of the sections looked loose or badly bricked, almost like dry stone walls, and I could well imagine dark tunnels concealed behind. I ducked under a heavy stone lintel festooned in thick sheets of cobweb, trying not to notice the spiders that scuttled into the corners. Standing in the darkness, listening to that unearthly scratching from somewhere behind all that stone and rock, I felt uncomfortably like one of the protagonists from the horror stories I loved so much. I tried to push those unwelcome thoughts aside, my imagination proving a hindrance as it populated my terrified mind with all kinds of gruesome images, as if the sound of a dead spirit clawing at the walls of the house I lived in weren't enough. Sweat darkened my shirt and my stomach churned uneasily as I pressed on through the gloom. I was in the farthest and narrowest part of the basement now. The light from the dim bulb struggled to infiltrate this far and only seemed to lengthen and deepen the prodigious shadows around me. The cobwebs became denser, black with dust and choked with debris, and the gruesome, stifling sense of being deep within a cold, subterranean tomb far from the surface 
was filling my heart with a heavy, claustrophobic trepidation that was rapidly becoming unbearable. I was alone, and yet not. That scratching was proof of that fact. Somewhere ahead of me, a dead thing clawed at the wall of its grave. Annabelle. I corrected myself quickly. Not a nameless thing lurking in the shadows, but a frightened girl. A victim of a monstrous crime. She was someone who needed my help. A living soul, simply divorced from her body. Who needed to find peace from her suffering that had been denied for too long. Bolstered by this new resolve, I pushed through a dense veil of cobwebs and on into sepulchral darkness. There was another bulb that should have cast light onto this section, but a sharp scrunching underfoot revealed its fate as I trod on the broken remains. The scratching was so close now, coming from a nearby patch of wall. I reached out, my fingers brushing the piled stones, lingering especially on one huge stone that had been pushed into the wall like a plug, and for a moment I felt cold air coming from behind it, and I knew then that Annabelle had been walled up into one of the curious tunnels I had heard about. Reaching out, I found I could hook my fingers around the edges of that stone plug, and I quickly realized I would be able to work it loose with a little effort. My heart quickened at the sound of footsteps approaching quickly from behind. I turned but saw nobody there, just the tattered edges of the cobweb moving in the breeze. Without warning, invisible hands seized my shoulders, pulling me back. I scrabbled at the stone, fingers white as I tried to pull it free. In my maddened state, battling against the unseen force that had hold of me, I hauled on the stone with all my strength, certain that if I could expose the monstrous crime that had been committed, Annabelle's soul could finally find rest. Those hands on my shoulders dug in harder. I could feel the nails biting into my skin. The air had become bitterly cold, my breath clouding the air in front of me. I glanced over my shoulder and for one terrifying moment I caught a glimpse of Mr. Bowman's face, contorted with despair. As with one final gargantuan heave, I pulled the large stone free, tumbling backwards as it crashed to the floor in a shower of dirt and grit. For a second, there was stillness. The fingers on my shoulders lifted and the whole world seemed to pause. You're free. A giddy elation flooded through me, but my celebrations were short-lived. A tarry gout of black-red blood burst thickly from that dark aperture, spattering over the stone floor and spraying across my shoes. It stank of fetid, coppery decay. I scrambled away, staring in shock as something moved deep within that blackness. A horrible, mewling wail issued from within the tunnel, a sound not born of a human throat, and one that I realized I had heard before. A malformed arm, small, sticky, and inhumanly long, reached out like some monstrous newborn nightmare crawling out of an unearthly womb. 
The blotchy flesh was covered in fine white hairs, tiny pallid phalanges terminating in grotesquely pointed tips without nails poured weakly at the edges of the opening before finally gripping it. I don't know how long I sat there staring in immobile shock. It felt like minutes but could only have been seconds. It was like a scene out of the horror fiction I loved or the stories I wrote, something that shouldn't have existed in reality, and yet the reality was undeniably before me. In the end, it was the sickening realization that the thing was pulling itself slowly forward towards the opening that spurred me to my feet. I stumbled through the basement, crashing into boxes and tripping up the steps that led back into the house. I was half mad with panic. I should have pushed that heavy block back into place, crushing those monstrous fingers and resealing that hellish spawn in its tomb. But in the numb terror of that moment, I succumbed to the overriding impulse to escape from that nightmare. I staggered down the hall, stumbling into the lounge and seizing one of the old pokers rising from the fireplace. My heart was ready to burst and a sickening, oily nausea was rising into my throat. I froze at the unmistakable sound of something crawling clumsily up the basement stairs, fleshy feet slapping against the wooden steps, and that awful mewling shriek came again. Then I realised Shadow was standing in the doorway to the hall, ears pricked forward, pupils narrowed as she watched something just out of sight to me. My breath caught in my throat as a tiny hand with those awful pointed fingers stretched into sight and touched the top of her head. Get away from her! Fury overcame terror. I struck the poker against the floor. There was a horrible pig-like squeal from the hallway as the hand recoiled. Then something flopped and scuffled away from us towards the back door of the house. Moments later, I heard the door burst open and the sounds of fleshy feet padding on the stone path. Shadow turned, giving me an imploring look before dashing down the hall and out into the night. Dazed, shocked, sickened, I hurried after her, my fears for her safety temporarily overriding any thoughts of my own. The storm had passed and the rain had gone. A trail of drying gorse speckled the carpet in the hall and led along the path just outside, disappearing into the woods not twenty feet away. I caught a glimpse of shadow before she too darted amongst the trees in pursuit. The woods felt different at night, brooding with menace. I picked my way between the trees. In the few weeks I had lived here, I had visited these woods daily, always finding them a source of beauty and peace. Tonight, every odd twisted shape etched a ghostly silver by the moonlight turned into a source of potential terror. I lumbered clumsily through the leaf litter underfoot, aware that I had lost all sense of where shadow and the unknown thing from the basement had gone. I wasn't foolish enough to go unarmed, though, and still clutched the heavy poker from the fireplace. The woods were utterly silent, save for my clumsy progress through the fallen leaves. I wandered directionless through the trees, listening for any other sounds of movement and too afraid to call out lest I draw unwanted attention, as if my scrunching feet hadn't already done so. I scrambled up a mossy incline and ducked beneath the scratching branches at the top before stopping to catch my breath. 
Up ahead, in a grove partly flooded by bright moonlight, I glimpsed movement. Edging closer and peering through the skeletal arms of the trees, a shiver ran through me. In the center of that space, a pale elfin child, misshapen and spattered with the blood of its delayed birth, was being lifted gently into the arms of a dark figure. Beside them shimmered a slender spectral form that I recognized immediately as Annabelle, her head bowed in love as she talked to the infant. I could feel a charge in the air like a tingle of electricity, and my skin knotted into goose flesh, the hairs on my neck and arms standing on end. There was an odd ripple to the air in the clearing, like a heat distortion on a desert horizon, and strange bursts of white light seemed to blossom and fade in the air. It took me a second to understand I was watching a moment stuck between two worlds. The poker dropped from my numb fingers, and all awareness of time and space left me. Something brushed my ankle and I almost screamed. It was Shadow. She sat beside me, her emerald eyes watching with calm interest, apparently oblivious to the incredible nature of the sight before her. The dark figure stepped forward into the moonlight and I finally caught a glimpse of his face, inhumanly beautiful, with moon-silver eyes that had looked upon worlds undreamed of by humans. His garments were woven of some strange natural fibers, decorated with leaves and coiling tree-like fronds. He saw me, I knew, and a faint smile crossed his lips. I sensed no hostility towards myself. And then they were gone in a heartbeat, as though having reunited, they had stepped back across the thinned veils. I cannot say how long I stayed there, staring at that empty grove now lit only by moonlight. I knew I had witnessed something miraculous, impossible, something most humans would never see or even dream of in a lifetime, and yet I was utterly bewildered as to exactly what it all meant. I walked home in a daze, my mind grappling with everything that the past few hours had thrown at me, having little recollection of the journey back through the wood. I found the house warm for the first time since I had moved in. I fell asleep in the chair in the lounge, the space a calm sanctuary at last, and awoke late the next morning to find Shadow curled on my lap, purring softly. I wandered around the house restlessly the next morning, toast burnt and uneaten, coffee going cold because I had forgotten to drink it. I stared out of all the windows, especially those facing the woods, feeling hollow and empty, as if something vibrant had been drawn from my life. Perhaps it was the sense that the house finally now felt vacant, aside from myself and Shadow. Or perhaps it was a sense that after everything I had witnessed last night, my life had now returned to its normal, prosaic pace and felt emptier for it. It wasn't until I wandered upstairs and found the final parting gift that things finally fell into place. The heavy bureau drawer that I had been unable to budge now lay wide open, and scattered across the floor were four crumpled pages written in the distinctive handwriting of Mr. Bowman and obviously torn from a journal 
I gathered them up, and sitting at the kitchen table with a fresh coffee beside me, I read each one. I fear for my daughter's soul. She has been walking in the woods at night again. I have watched her dancing and singing at the bottom of the garden when she thinks I am not watching, raising her arms to the moon in adoration. There is a wildness within her, and I am afraid that my attempts to reason with her are driving her father from me. She seems so meek and obedient by day, but by night, the change that steals over her is unsettling to behold, especially on the new and full moons. I followed her into the woods last night, keeping as silent as I could. It took every ounce of my resolve not to attempt to seize her and carry her back to the house, to lock the door and forbid her from leaving. But that would solve nothing. I needed to see for myself if my worst fears were true. And I wished to God they had not been. To see her cast aside her nightgown and dance naked in the moonlight, calling upon her unseely lover, was as shocking as it was repugnant. I had been all but ready to intervene then, until I saw him. He stepped out of the very shadows themselves, eyes like quicksilver and hair as long and fine as spun silk. I saw him take her in his arms, hands caressing her body and breasts, their lips touching. And then, as he laid her gently upon the ground, I saw him glance at me, his smile deepening. He knew. He knew I was there. I fled through the darkness back to the house. The iron on the doors will keep him out. But what of my darling Annabelle? Annabelle is pregnant. She claims it was a young boy from Perford that she has been secretly seeing. She must think me a fool. I know what evil has seduced her, and I am sick with terror when I think of what blasphemy now grows within my daughter, waiting to burst loose into the world. She talks of love, but I can only see the corruption which has infected her. That which grows within cannot be allowed into the world. I permitted this evil to occur through my inactions, and I will take care of it. The final page was written in shaky handwriting that had clearly been scrawled in great haste. The ink was smudged and blotched, making entire sections hard to understand. Annabelle is dead. How can this happen? I was trying to save her life, not end it. I bound her wrists and carried her screaming down the stairs into the kitchen. She was struggling, kicking the walls as I went, but I knew I was doing the right thing, so I ignored her cries. I don't know what happened. Suddenly there was so much blood and she had stopped moving. 
I tried to revive her, but she wouldn't stop bleeding. I thought at least the horror was finally over. But then I saw it kick inside her and knew it was still alive. I carried her into the basement and sealed it up forever. But Mrs. Lindell came back when I was trying to clean the kitchen. She saw the blood and wanted to call the police. I tried to stop her, but she got away. I know what I must do now, before the police arrive. The tree outside this window shall be my final judge. Let these words be my confession. I tried only to do the right thing. I put the final page down and sat back. My fingers were shaking. Was it possible that by giving Annabelle and the child peace, I had somehow done the same for the poor Mr. Bowman? I thought back to the dark figure I had seen holding the child. Unseely he may have been, but that smile he had given me was one of gratitude. The next day I buried Annabelle's skeletal remains in the woods, in the spot where her spirit had departed with her otherworldly lover and child. I planted the plug of stone that had hidden her remains for so long on the spot as a headstone, and then made my way quietly home. Heading upstairs, I turned on my laptop, and settling down with shadow curled contentedly on my lap, I began to write. The sunlight streamed in pale, listless patches through the narrow windows of Underhill Rectory, the tattered curtains hanging like limp, rotting ghosts. The sun creeps above the horizon. The darkness slowly fades, for now. But you will fear the darkness once again, as you remain sleepless. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member 
and for being ever sleepless. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.